0: Thank you all for for welcoming us this evening. I'm really excited to have this conversation. So it's no secret that just simply being around people who are different from us makes us more creative, more diligent, and harder working. Um, Organizational scientists, psychologists, sociologists, economists have proven that socially diverse groups, that is, those with a a diversity of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, ability, and age are more innovative and productive than homogenous groups of individuals. This is not only because people with different backgrounds bring new information. Simply interacting with individuals who are different forces group members to prepare better, to anticipate alternative viewpoints, and to expect that reaching consensus will take effort. The benefits to business also involve customer service. A Harvard Business Review study in 2014 indicated that when at least one member of a team has traits in common with the end user, the entire team better understands that user. And so a team with a member who shares a client's ethnicity or other traits is over 150% likelier than another team member to understand that client. And this also pertains, the benefits also pertain to retention and turnover, productivity, corporate responsibility and financial performance. So that's why we're having this conversation today. While Rochester shines as an innovation hub in technology, the demographics of our highest professional, paid professional classes do not reflect the demographics of our community as a whole. We as leaders must come together and do better or else our economy will suffer as we compete with other geographic areas for talent and jobs and investment. And with that I would like to introduce our esteemed panelists this evening. To my right is Victoria Van Voorhees and I call her Tory, as do many of you in the room. Victoria Torrey is the founder and CEO of Second Avenue Software Inc., or Second Ave Learning, an award-winning educational game studio that has been producing educational games and interactives for over 13 years, and it goes far beyond games and interactives. Um, Their their products have over 30 million playthroughs of science, games, and simulations in 31 countries, Tori's company has launched games on a number of platforms, including Nintendo Switch. And her company was awarded a major grant this past year to create applications for the centennial of women's suffrage, which is really exciting. Dr. Deanna Kimbrell, I call her D, many of you do as well, is a scholar practitioner in the field of leadership and organizational design. Dee has worked as a diversity and inclusion practitioner, educator, entrepreneur, and administrator for the majority of her career. And some of her highlights and strengths include organizational strategy, leadership development, consulting, public speaking, coaching, and corporate training. Right now, we're fortunate that Dee leads diversity and inclusion for one of our region's largest private employers, Paychecks. So she acts as a... Was, uh, simultaneously, she acts as a speaker and consultant for other organizations and runs an online boutique in addition to being a single mom and a mentor in the community. And her passions for d evolved from personal experiences and professional experiences, which we're going to talk about tonight. Finally, Kevin Beckford is here. Kevin is the staff director of equity and inclusion at the University of Rochester, the number one private employer in our region and across upstate New York. Kevin is also a council member for the town of Pittsburgh, and so is a public servant serving our communities. He's the first African-American to be, to hold elective office in Pittsburgh in its 200 plus year history, so that's significant. So can I have a round of applause please for our panelists. So to keep things tight this evening, um, I've, I've simplified the questions to just three, and each of our panelists will be asked to answer each of those three questions individually, and they're broader based, so you're gonna hear some color commentary that will help further um, color our conversations later on this evening. So my first question, and we can just go straight from from you, Tori, to Dee, to Kevin. Uh, In your roles in business and as active members of the Rochester community, how might you describe the importance of representation as it pertains to positive outcomes? That's a really broad question. Um, I don't know.
1: Um, So the first thing I want to say in answer to that is first I'm a cisgendered female from an upper-middle class background so I'm like I'm gonna just put out there that I've got a ton of privilege and um, it's something that I've been aware of since I was a little kid and I try to do my best so you know I just wanna make sure that that's That's clear when we design our educational products we don't have a choice about who the end learner is we actually have to design for everyone and representation there is super important Um, and there are things that you might not think about when you're designing a product Um, socioeconomic status is a huge factor in um, uh, the design of an educational intervention, whether or not you're designing for a little kid or for an adult, it matters. Um, race and ethnicity are really um, difficult terms, and I think they're charged terms, but if you don't have um, a thoughtful uh, array of people on your team and you're not taking those factors into account during design, you're going to fail. Um, and it's a, it, we'll talk a little bit about that more when we get to talk to when we talk about design Um, and then the other thing that I want to talk about is sexual orientation um, and or gender representation and there's some other things that we can talk about in terms of just general ability but um, if you aren't thinking about the diversity of your users and your end products you can exclude people by not including them and um, how many people here have ever played the sims? right? Um, and Will Wright, if, if you haven't you should go over to the Strong Museum's archives. Um, Will Wright, when he built The Sims, he was an amazing game designer, and in the marginalia of one of his um, design docs for The Sims, he just wrote same-sex marriage equals love. And in that one moment he made um, a design choice to make that possible in The Sims. And so that allowed kids who were playing these Sims or young adults who were playing them to actually envision themselves. And that just moment of insight created a whole opportunity for kids to see themselves represented in games. And before that, like there was Caper and the Castro in the early 80s and that's about it for LGBTQ representation in games. So it's when you're thoughtful about design and inclusion and you can represent the spectrum of people that bring themselves together, you end up with more impactful products. And it actually makes people stop and think when they're building their sim, what that might mean um, to choose a same sex partner or to represent yourself differently from an gender perspective. So that's just, uh, we have to think about that every time we build an educational product or a serious game or a simulation or when we're designing um, educational content because we don't know what kids are sitting in that classroom or at the other end of the play space that we've created.
2: Thanks, Tori. I think she said it all. <laughs> very good. But I would just also add on to that representation is very important. Um, in our business, in our industry, when I think about bringing people into the organization, one of the biggest problems we have is the war on talent. So making sure that we are able to attract and retain um, a diverse population. And in that aspect, I think that representation is very important because people are looking for people that look like them in the organization. So they know that there's someone that will be able to uh, have a voice for them if they don't have one, and also that they have opportunity throughout the organization. So I think that when there is proper representation of differences, people that are different will be more attracted and more likely to stay within the organization because they feel like they have a voice and then they feel like they have opportunity.
3: So I'm gonna give a little bit of a, um, an additional sort of spin on this from a, a government perspective. So. With my, uh, when I got elected to office, um, it, I didn't know when I was running uh, until I got um, on the ballot. And they said, you know, you're going to be the first. And I said, you yeah, know, first what? <laughs> 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 you know, so I kind of thought we had done that already, you know. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, as far as a little bit of background on me, I was born in Kingston, Jamaica. And I spent about 18 years in the Bahamas Islands. So my dad was an engineer and was recruited by the Bahamian government. And... So I lived in the Bahamas with, uh, from about three years old until 18. Um, so my entire social construct is based on uh, very different than what you're used to here in the United States. And I've lived here for 30 years now, and I I, I summarily reject the social construct that I have to live with every day. And what do I mean by that? Um, you know, I grew up where the governor um, of the island, the prime minister, doctor, lawyer, homeless person person uh, in the market all looked like me. So color was, was not something that we ever talked about. We had, when we describe people, we never even mentioned that. We would, you know, big, tall, slim, you know, we, we would use every descriptor except for that because it was a non-issue. I, so I grew up not even mentioning that. And then for every one native person on the island, we had about two to three people from all over the world. So I grew up. With, with having people that looked from everywhere you can think of as part of the human, you know, um, you know, sort of condition, you know, like who we are, the global citizen. And so I grew up with an appreciation in such a way that when I got off the plane here, no one gave me a memo that said, just so you know, heads up, you know, some of the things you're used to doing as a person, as a human, in this case here could get you killed. All right, or hurt or harmed, or you may find doors don't open, and, and so um, so it took many years. Um, sometimes people thought I was courageous, um, and and I'm sure there's courage there, but most of it was naiveness. I just didn't know, uh, and that was my secret weapon. So I, I actually you know uh, would make people uncomfortable uh, because they were sort of like, hey, don't, didn't you get the memo? You're not know, supposed to be in this room or in this meeting, or you shouldn't you know feel this confident, or you know all these things that. That when you don't have microaggressions that you have to live with every single day as a kid all the way to an adult, it affects you. Um, So I have to share that with you because that's my sort of lived experience and it affects everything that I do. So when I look at the world around me every day, I wake up, I had to learn things that needed to keep me safe, you know, to be able to make sure that until the social construct changes and sadly, after 30 years, it hasn't changed much. Um, to be honest with you, um, but here's why representation matters. So when I found out and they said you're going to be the first, I started doing a little bit of digging to say, okay, well, okay. So that tells me we have a board, uh, we have 30,000 people live in our town. Uh, we're the most affluent town in Monroe County. The average per household income for Monroe County is about 57,000. Uh, for, for people of color, African-Americans specifically, it's, it's 29,000 per household. Uh, in Pittsburgh it's 108,000 per household. So I said, okay, right, so that's a, that's, that's a little bit of the frame. Um, I looked at diversity of our residential base, 2% African American, 2%, right? 10 minutes away, high percentage, right? So I thought, okay, so that means that I need to make sure I'm responsible for this position I'm gonna take to, to bring my lived experience to help create meaningful and not just change, but sustainable systemic change, right? So, here's what I discovered. We were the only town that never issued a proclamation to Martin Luther King. Most people didn't know that. Um, Not because they didn't want to, Uh, nobody asked. Representation matters. So, I was sworn in on the 3rd of January 2018, the very first thing I asked for was, I'd like us to issue a proclamation to Martin Luther King to celebrate the life and legacy of Martin Luther King. First response was sure, no problem, representation matters. So not only did we have our first proclamation, I had every board member read it, and we have five board members read one paragraph from that. My next request was I want this to be framed and put in perpetuity in the Pittsburgh Library forever. So when that building comes down, that comes down. And I want to put it in a high traffic area, so if you visit the Pittsburgh Library today, the new book section, there's a column to the right of it, you'll see that proclamation. A year later, uh, the um, uh, Samra Brook, some of you, know she's running for Senate, her family, the Brooke family, and, uh, and a number of volunteers within Pittsburgh, we ended up creating a four day Martin Luther King Living the Dream series in 2019, a year later, uh, and we couldn't get the town to fully fund it because they weren't sure if it would work, so our families and a couple other folks, we funded the first one, uh, approved the concept, the very next month I brought it back to the board and said I'd like us to adopt this. Now if we have the Duck Drop every year, we have the Food Truck Rodeo every year, we're gonna have a cultural event every year. So that, so it was approved unanimously. So in 2020, we had a five day Martin Luther King Living the Dream series. So every night there's something different, a movie night and discussion about race, and it, it includes people from all over Monroe County. Representation matters. And there's more things I'll share a little bit later if we have time, but, but these are things that, are gonna, that, that I think that if we're not in the room, you know, that's one thing. When you're in the room, to be able to use your agency position and power for good. We have folks that sometimes are in the room but they're not doing anything other than saying, ooh, I'm here. No, I, you know, you, I wanna make sure that I, I, I pave the way for meaningful systemic change.
0: Thank you, Kevin. The next question is, um, I'm going to ask you for some insights and some ideas. What are some examples of structural changes both within institutions and in the public arena or arenas that can lead to positive change, necessary change for Rochester, New York with regard to inclusion and diversity? Another broad one, but structural changes.
1: Well, I can start with what we do inside our company. And we moved the company downtown because we wanted to be part of this community and we wanted to model um, that there was innovation happening and I wanted to have some of those creative collisions that Tom talked about. Um, We work very hard to make sure that our team is diverse um, across a whole set of you know, vectors, right? Racial diversity, gender diversity. We have worked with RIT to have kids who are on the autism spectrum co-op in our office so that they have exposure to the workplace and that our team members have experience in working with people on the autism spectrum. So first and foremost, make sure that you have representation, to Kevin's point, at your table. Second, our design protocols for everything that we build, that sort of diversity and representation is one of the first questions that we ask ourselves. Um, And then as we're doing our design and testing, we actually create design test protocols that require us to test with urban, suburban, and rural cohorts. And we make sure that we have gender balance. And we do that whether or not we're Designing for adults or little kids or teenagers or somewhere in between. And in doing that, we find out amazing things. And I'm going to tell you a little story. We got a grant from the National Science Foundation a few years ago to build a product that we call Martha Madison. It's an award-winning STEM product. And I started out with the idea that I wanted to improve STEM outcomes for girls because it's not great in this country. It's not great in a lot of places for women in STEM. And so we designed these games to be in cooperative because that's important in terms of play for girls. Cooperative play is better than competitive. And we situated science in social, in social context. You're doing good, right? And there's a reason that science is important, right? Like if you learn chemistry, you might cure cancer. You know, if you want to help somebody out you might need to build a bridge it was all designed to like situate the learning of science and context and so we tested with urban suburban and rural kids we had over-the-shoulder video cameras we looked at all the data and we did pre-posts right we did sort of a, an assessment before and an assessment after and I got to my post assessment with my urban kids we used um, a cohort of kids from the 19 Ward Boys and Girls Club, and I felt like I had failed. I was like, there was no difference on the pre-post in terms of the standardized assessment items. And I was like, I totally failed these kids. Like, I did it wrong. And then we started digging into the data even more. And what we discovered was that these kids didn't have a lot of preconceptions about science, because to be quite frank, the RCSD does a very poor job of teaching science. I um, apologize to anybody from the RCSD in here. But the solutions that they generated in the games were more creative and more innovative. They anticipated solutions to the puzzles that our PhD physicists never planned. Right? And I was like, huh. And then, because we'd rolled videotape, I watched the videotape and we had some grad students code it. And you would think that this would be Captain Frickin' obvious. Right? And I'm watching them play, and this happened to be a simple machines puzzle that we asked them to play with. And they were like, oh, you gotta put the ramp thingy over there, man. No, 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 you gotta go, it's gotta go there. And that's when I had my aha moment. They were referring to the ramp thingy, and all the pre-post tests refer to an inclined plane. And These kids just did not have the language of science. And I would not have had that aha moment if I hadn't created that test. And I'll tell you, we had a whole different set of aha moments when we tested with the rural kids, right? We could go down that path a different night. But when we, we, re, we refactored the game and we did this like, I don't know if you remember the movies from the 50s where they would like subliminally flash popcorn on the screen before the movie started. <laughs> we took a page out of that book and we flashed things like um, convex lens and showed a picture of it or inclined plane. And then the kids thought that they were getting secret hints and tips in the game and they started because it was cooperative using the language of science to play the game. And so after we did that, we did pre-post tests and we showed a full letter grade improvement with no teacher intervention just by playing the game. And what happens is when kids learn language through play, they internalize it. And so then When the teacher is standing up there lecturing, it's not wah 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 incline plane, wah, 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 wah. They're like, oh, it's that thing in the game. And they those cognitive hooks have been set. And so, you know, not all of you get to design serious games for a living. So I you know, I feel really bad for you. (laughs) But when you're doing design, you have to invite people to the table that reflect the participants, right? You have to engage with those kids as part, for us it's kids or adults or whomever, to make sure that you're anticipating their needs in your design and you have to know that you're gonna get it wrong sometimes and learn and make it better. We've gone on to do testing with Derek Coley. I don't know if he's here tonight, I don't see him. He runs the Safe to be Smart program through the Rochester Public Library. We've got game changers and we invite kids to come in and play test and play games in our office all the time. But just know that you're gonna get it wrong, be willing to be wrong, and make it better, but make sure that you invite the right people to the table or to the experience.
2: Thank you, I love that story. (laughs) Um, I can talk to you guys about what we do at Paychex um, since I've been there. So I've been leading the diversity and inclusion um, structure at Paychex for the last year and a half. So when I came into the organization, we didn't even have a commitment, right? So there was nothing. Um, there was no structure. There was no commitment. There was there wasn't anything organizational around diversity and inclusion. Although things have happened in little pockets throughout the organization. Now paychecks is a sixteen thousand. person, organization throughout the country and in some international countries as well. So some things that may be happening in our Charlotte location or in our Rochester location, nobody kind of knew about it. So nothing was centralized and there was no commitment. So it was just employees trying to get things from off the ground here and there when they had time. Um, So when I was brought into the organization, I started off with creating a commitment. So Tori, you talked about language, right? So we wanted to make sure that everyone knew that we were committed in the language around that. So to educate people on the language, we created a training, an enterprise-wide training, to make sure that everybody in the organization gets at the same time. That training was broke broken up into the definition of diversity and inclusion. As we know, there's all different definitions for IND based on our experiences, right? So we started off with a textbook definition, but also informed people about the different identities and how those different lenses kind of shape how we experience diversity and inclusion. And this is particularly important for leaders to understand because these are the ones that are making decisions and implementing changes throughout the organization. Um, So from there, we implemented the training. So it's a four-part training. Um, And then we also looked at how we bring people into the organization. So a series of different interventions or structural changes on how we do things. So Paychex is about a 40-year-old company, right? So a lot of our systems and the way that we do things is 40 years old, right? So let's think about what was happening 40 years ago. And we don't wanna bring people into the organization that way. So some of the things that we implemented was diverse panels. So again, representation, different ideas and perspectives matter. So we looked at for our um, manager and above levels, where there was very low representation, we would implement diverse panels and make sure that there is a diversity in thought when we're bringing or moving leaders throughout the organization. Um, and that's just one thing in the hiring process. We work to train our uh, talent acquisition managers and our hiring managers on bias, right? So that's the biggest thing that gets in the way of inclusion is bias. So we have a lot of biases. And, um, what usually happens is people are selecting people because they remind them of themselves, right? It's just like me. They're going to be great for the team. So, uh, working to ensure that we're training people like training people to not think that way and think about differences. So what are the uniquenesses that people can bring that we need to have on the team? Um, Traditionally, we looked at that in a more proactive way. So after teams are made up, we say, oh, this team is pretty much the same. We need some diversity, which is too late because we're not gonna fire people in the name of diversity. So working with the leaders on how to think about that proactively um, and building teams and bringing people into the organization um, and how to, we know that biases are hard to um, get over in the moment. So we are kind of working with them to have those hard stops in the process before decisions are made. We're also looking at promotion, so how do we move people through the organization? We know that some people, because of those same biases, get overlooked. So we're creating pipelines that prepare people and put them in the position for for different roles and leadership roles throughout the organization, organization, especially uh, women and people of color. And then we look at the environment. So what are the benefits that we're offering to make inclusion and diversity tangible? What makes inclusion and diversity tangible to people is gonna be the opportunity that they have to thrive, right? So we wanna make sure that we have benefits to give people those opportunities. So when I'm training, I always say, what's fair? Who can answer that question here? What's fair? When we think about fair, what is that? Who can give me their definition of fair?
0: I'll say equal pay for equal work is a big piece of that, right?
2: Absolutely, equal pay
0: for equal work, right? Like where you come from, and
2: right. Absolutely, and the biggest thing, and that's the hardest question for leaders to answer. And these are the people that are making fair decisions every day. And I say, well, what is fair? And I'm like, eh. So what fair is, is we want to give people what they need in order to be successful. It's not going to be the same thing for everybody, but giving everybody what they need. And that's our benefits and resources. So if we don't even know, if our leaders don't know what our benefits and resources are, how can they be fair in the process of giving people what they need? So it's number one, making people aware of the benefits that we offer, cause we have a lot, and then also making sure that they have access to those benefits and that they're able to be fair in the workplace. Um, another thing is teaching leaders, and I think that our, well I know that our diversity and inclusion strategy is really focused on leadership. So we wanna make sure that the leaders are the ones implementing the strategy. I'm only one person, to 16,000 people. So I cannot go to every work environment and implement diversity and inclusion, it's really up to the leaders to do that. And one thing we focus on the leaders being able to do is coach through a lack of inclusion or issues related to inclusion and diversity like microaggressions. So we teach them what microaggressions are and then how do we coach in regards to intent versus impact. Um, And it's important in regards to saving relationships as well as our culture. Um, So we work with leaders on how to identify that. Of course people won't come into the office and say, oh, it's a microaggression going on today, right? They're not going to say that. They're going to say people are being disrespectful, people are, you know, different things like that. So how do we identify what the issues are? And then how do we coach through that to save relationships, to save communication, and also to grow our culture as well? Um, So I think that there's a lot of things that an organization must do, but the number one thing an organization must do is make a commitment. And that's something that we've done at Paychex. And it started with our CEO... Um, vocalizing that. Why diversity and inclusion is important, why it's important to everyone, and then a brief um, idea of what it looks like. So it, it really starts at the top with the commitment and then several structural things.
3: Thank you. Um, so one of the things, I'll share this, um, uh, before I share the practical example, uh, I have to explain to you a little bit of how it influenced, you know, why you and I talk about being in the room to be able to direct change. It has to do with your lived experience, right? So for example, when I was going through college, I worked three jobs. Um, they, you know, these, you know, I washed dishes, cleaned the bathroom, um, vacuumed, you know, that was one job uh, in the a restaurant. I worked at a dry cleaning, Dr. K's Cleaners. And Henrietta, if you know that, I used to take your, the clothes in. And then I also worked um, uh, at a nursing home washing dishes on the weekend. Uh, I don't know where I got the energy to do that. I look back at it, you know, at 55 now. I'm like, boy, how did I do that? But but here's what that did: that actually informed me. So I remember working uh, with folks that this was their career um, because of their life experiences that they, in some cases, didn't get a chance to finish high school. So um, and so I had a deep, deep level of respect for every job. Uh, and so um, you know, and you know Martin Luther King. And one of his features says we can't all be captains, some of us have to be crew. There's something for all of us to do. You know, whatever you decide to do is just be the best at that. And so that, I, I sort of had that lived experience. So why is that important? So when I uh, got on the town board, a number of things we ended up doing, because I have a four-year term, I put together a four-year strategy, and the, and, the, and the goal was very simple. I wanted to leave behind systemic change to make sure that I, when I look back at it, I can say, hey, this is something that we changed the, the landscape. So the first budget we're gonna be approving, uh, because when you get elected, you have to absorb that budget that was approved before you got on board. So your first budget that you approve is the next year. So um, I sit as part of my role at the University of Rochester, I sit on the Rochester Anti-Poverty Initiative Employment Workforce Group, and I co-chair a project on wage enhancement with ESNL, Um, uh, um, uh, their equivalent uh, CDO, um, Dr. Collier. Uh, and so I became intimately involved in understanding how poverty was affecting Rochester. 65,000 people living in poverty, 20,000 are working poor. Uh, so they're working multiple jobs, stitching together several jobs just to create a, a uh, one livable wage. Uh, in fact, if you, if you parked in the garage across the street today, anybody parked in the garage across the street? Okay, So so when I walk through my life and, and occupy any space I, I try to see people and so the person who checked you in who moved that red cone as she was giving me change I said how was your day she said I'm, I'm exhausted I said um, a long day she says yeah but I, had a, I have another job too so I came from that job to come here I said so you have two jobs I said which one's full time so I'm, I'm interviewing this person right I said, uh, she said, well that's a full-time job, this is my second job. I said, would you like to have one job? Yeah, I'd love that. I said, here's my card, call me. Remind me where we meet, because I do this a lot. And we'll get you in for an exploratory to see if we can get you a livable wage job. Right? Use your position, power and agency for change, see people. I mean, she, uh, she looked at me, she says, thank you. I said, what's your name? I said, she said, Anna. I said, okay. I said, I look forward to your email. She says. You mean that? I said, yep. So, here's the thing. When we were getting ready to approve our budget, we have a $20 million budget in Pittsburgh. Um, I took, we only have a, 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 a short number of employees. We don't have thousands. You know, at 125 and, uh, and then we, you know, we grow to seasonal employment. Um, so, I'll be real quick, promise. Um, so, when I took a look at it, I said, well, we have some people that are working minimum wage. You know, we have folks working over 100,000. We have folks that are the whole spectrum but just like any other company, we have people that are in lower-skilled jobs making minimum wage. I said, so, well listen, because of my role on, on, on MAPI and my lived experience of what it's like to live in those, work in those jobs, it's unacceptable to me to pay minimum wage. That's, that was meant to be a floor, not a target. So what I'd like to propose is if we take any of our employees that are below 1350 and we move them up to 1350. that becomes our new minimum wage and we index it to the rest of the pay structure so that it never happens again. So do the math, find out what it would cost, and then come back and let me know. Now, we didn't have the majority position. There's only two of the five people on the board are Democrats, so if the answer was no, I lose. But I didn't frame it around politics. I framed it around humanity. They came back and said, yes, I offered the amendment, the supervisor seconded it, which told his two Republican colleagues, line up behind me, and we had unanimous, no fan fear. The minimum wage in Pittsburgh is 13.50 now, which is through the MIT calculator online is the entry point uh, for a livable wage or benefits.
2: Yeah. Wow,
0: that was tremendous. So we talked about essentially incorporating humanity into everything that we do, including in business and in public service, in top-down commitment and actually building structure around education in institutions and we talked about product design and we're building a product and we're th- we, we keep the end user in mind. Um, those are all tremendous insights. The, the final question that I'm going to, oh yeah. Oh, okay. All right, unless, can we grab a final thought from each of the panelists? Okay final thoughts, any personal experiences that you'd like to share before we wrap? I guess I would just ask you all to keep in mind,
1: you never know who's looking at you as a role model and make sure that you're leading like Kevin's done and like Dia's done in every opportunity. You have the power to make change.
2: I would just add the importance of inclusion. And I always lead with inclusion at Paychex. We lead with inclusion um, just because that's where the structure and strategy is. We're all different in one way or another. But just remember the importance can be somebody's life. Inclusion is very important. There's psychological safety issues associated with the lack of inclusion. So that little thing that you can do in your workplace, and your community to be more inclusive may save somebody's life. So inclusion is that important?
3: I'll leave you with this thought: um, When you look at any problem, like the problems we're talking about here, they look insurmountable because they're huge. You know, I, I've seen little change in 30 years in areas that count. There has been some change, but and I think it's because we're not all in the solution. It's not our You know, it's not people of color to solve the problems of inequity, it's all of us because it's a humanity issue, right? And so to me, what I would recommend, um, and this is how I live my personal life, um, and it's my commitment is that if you think of a problem as a bowl, and we all have cups, some of us have bigger cups than others, depending upon your role, your kind of, you know, the, the agency you have. Your goal is very simple, dip it into the problem and fix that. And when your cup is empty, go back and get some more of the problem, right? And so find your cup of change. Find out what agency position power you have and to be part of the solution and don't leave it for anybody else because it isn't anybody else, it's you that we're waiting for.
0: Excellent. Kevin Beckford. Thank you. Dr. Deanna Kimbrell, Victoria Van Voorhis. Thank you all.